Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Chaloner and you join us on a sunny but cool autumn day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on this afternoon's programme, I'm delighted to be joined by Andrew Leach. Andrew is the Managing Director of Fleet Evolution. Based in Tamworth, Staffordshire, the business is an award-winning employee car scheme and fleet management company specialising in salary sacrifice cars, eco-friendly vehicles and affinity schemes, among other things. Andrew, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. Fantastic. Thanks for the invitation. It's a real pleasure to welcome you onto the airwaves, um, Andrew. Um, normally, we dive straight in to the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we start there because it has been a dark and dense cloud over all of us throughout the course of this year and indeed one of the most significant challenges of our time for leaders in all walks of life but for you and your business just how has it affected you and your operations it's been uh, as you can imagine uh, a difficult period so we are in a type of industry which is heavily affected by government legislation anyway and we've been through a slow period because we're closely linked to electric cars and we want to get as many people out of diesels into electrics as we can. And we've been waiting for government policy, which was kind of sidetracked by Brexit and uh, other sideshows, to kind of get behind them. Uh, so we had lots of positive news, but no action. And then eventually, towards the end of last year, we had quite a lot of government action around the whole climate agenda. Um, and I would say, in the big picture of things, and I apologise for, for saying this, but um, yeah, the big catastrophe facing our population is, is climate. Coronavirus will probably kill a couple of million people uh, this year, which is horrific uh, in the UK. Well, worldwide, sorry, it's horrific. But uh, climate change kills 7 million every year. And uh, we have a lot of the tools to be able to reduce that straight away. Um, so we were coming out of that period where the government were heavily getting behind the climate agenda. And we were really starting to get fantastic traction. And then along came COVID. Um, straight away, we saw a lot of our employees that we deal with in a lot of difficulty and uncertainty. So they were kind of pushing off, making changes. They were sticking to what they knew, so sticking to all the diesels instead of moving across. The financial markets went into a bit of turmoil. So uh, the funders, which helped fund these vehicles and fund other developments and everything else, um, entrenched themselves, I guess is the best expression, and kind of just shut up shop and kept their powder dry rather than uh, get too engaged in the marketplace. So we had to find new funders to fund some of our customer vehicles. And then manufacturers, a lot of the automotive manufacturers, um, seemed almost determined to make the whole thing as painful economically as it could be and laid off fast ways of their employee base. So where we did have people actually needed vehicles, needed vehicles delivery, needed vehicle servicing, green, clean vehicles, we were just struggling to spend money and actually um, buy vehicles or buy servicing or buy tires or spare parts or anything else. So we did go through about four months of um, real doldrum business, really. We're getting quite, we're still getting a reasonable amount of interest, but it was, it was increasingly difficult to fulfill that interest and, uh, and go out and actually spend money, which was uh, frustrating, uh, really frustrating at the time. 
I think there are a couple of important things to take away from that for sure, Andrew. Certainly the um, importance of sustainability that's come about as a result of the uh, the lockdown, albeit it did halt your operations uh, somewhat there, as you mentioned. There has been a renewed awareness of the, uh, the green agenda, hasn't there? And that's something that hopefully we can continue with because there is now a large proportion of the population that favours a green economic recovery. And also with the effect on working practices as well, people moving more toward remote working and less commuters being out there, that can only really bode well for the future in terms of the climate emergency as well, don't you think? So some features of the lockdown period could well end up working out for the better. We're certainly seeing a lot more interest in electric cars overall. There are some downsides to that, of course, in that people are moving away from public transport because they no longer see it as safe. So um, although I run an electric car company, um, I I still want people to use public transport because overall it's probably the best solution for the environment. And people are shying away from that. uh, And they're going more and more towards their own transport and just causing potentially more pollution if that happens to be diesel or petrol. So there are downsides, but yes, absolutely on the whole. We've just come out of um, the bounce back, I guess, from lockdown. We've had two record months. Uh, this month, September, has been our best month on record. Um, and it's been, yeah, it's just fantastically, we're fantastically uh, optimistic about the future. Now, yes, you're right, climate is becoming more and more part of everybody's agenda. My children are very excited about the climate. You know, they lambast my wife if she throws away some plastic, which could be recycled. They're the people who David Attenborough said will take this forward, and I can definitely see that. And yes, for my business, people are enjoying now clean air. They're enjoying being able to see the stars at night. Uh, and it's a fantastic opportunity for us. It certainly is. And um, looking into the uh, the future, um, what do you predict the sort of long-term impact of the pandemic period is going to be on your industry? Can you see you, yourselves coming out of this strong, given that renewed awareness? I think us as a business, we'll come out of it strong. I think the automotive industry as a whole mm. are still um, too eager to try and reach out for government support uh, rather than try and take matters into their own hands. So during the crisis, we saw this. They were almost entrenching themselves. They were controlling spend. They were laying off and furloughing whenever and wherever possible and ramping down production, whereas actually there were quite a lot of sectors of the marketplace where people wanted products and wanted services, which weren't being provided. I think manufacturers are starting now to get on board with electric cars, partly because of the stick um, from the EU around CO2 emissions and average CO2 emissions from their fleet. And then they're starting to get on board and starting to embrace this a little more I think we'll see some fantastic changes, not just for us at Fleet Evolution, but also, and I'm not saying this um, with any any sense of irony, but just also for the planet. You know, it's uh, it's important we sort it out. It certainly is, absolutely. And it's one thing that I'll certainly be keeping an eye on over the uh, the next few months, just how green the green recovery hopefully is uh, going to be. Um, in the meantime, if we move on to discuss leadership just that little bit more broadly, I always like to ask the question, Andrew, when guests appear on the programme, what do you feel the role of a leader actually should be? When I say the word leader, what does it literally mean to you? Uh, to me, it's a coach who can bring people together and just inspire them to perform at their best, I guess. Um, mm. my, my own leadership style has changed from when I was working for somebody else and somebody else paid the salaries to 
the current environment where it's a very small team compared to the organisations I used to work in. Um, but um, probably quite a highly skilled and driven team. Uh, but yes, I think it's someone who can coach all the individuals they have to get the best out of each and just really have that eye to recruit the best talent for the needs of their business and their customers, uh, which may not, of course, always be the person that you uh, would go out drinking with at the weekend or something mm. like this, but somebody who has the best skill set for that particular job. Yes, there are a few important things to take away from that response, I think, especially in the sense that leaders are there to inspire and to motivate people. We've certainly seen that over this period of time because leaders have had to step up to the plate to keep people reassured, keep people motivated amid a lot of uncertainty and a lot of worry, of course. However, when you are the leadership figure i suppose you come under a lot of pressure during that time and they do say it's a lonely place at the top because worried employees can refer to you and consult with you as somebody who is above them when you are at the top of the tree where is it that you tend to go to to look for a bit of inspiration and direction as and when you feel you need it yourself um I read myself quite a lot of motivational books. Uh, I listen to motivational talk. Um, I try to listen to everyone from Simon Sinek to Anthony Robbins and just get, um, first of all, just get my own head clear. Uh, and secondly, just to try and empathize with those people who work for me. Uh, in our arena, we're in the HR marketplace because we sell an employee benefit. In HR at the moment, mental well-being is huge, and um, mm. I've had challenges in the past because uh, I'm I'm a kind of mid forty, uh, well late forty year old guy, uh, where sometimes some of the younger generation are more free to talk about their mental frailty and things like this, and, and just understand and empathise with where they're coming from. Uh, so yeah, I do I do take a lot of inspiration from motivational speakers, um, attend quite a lot of TED talks, and just. Try to get other people's perspectives because we are all very, very different. Uh, we do all have different strengths and weaknesses. It's just trying to tap into those to get the best out of the team, which in turn hopefully means I'll get the best out of myself. And just how crucial is mental health and leadership in your view, both in terms of safeguarding your own, but also that of the people around you? Um your attitude dictates absolutely everything, doesn't it? It's um, you know, it, mm. it's what gets people through, and what will hopefully get us all through COVID. It's it's the attitude to know that this will pass, uh, and to see the opportunity that can come out through the other side. Um, in terms of in terms of mental health and mental well being, it's 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 more important now than ever because um, I mean I mean myself, one of the things that causes me um, anguish or stress is not being in control and that's one of the reasons I started my own company uh, and unfortunately at the moment with COVID we're not in control or we're not in control of the big things but the small things you are in control of it's really focusing on those and focusing on just making sure that yes uh, we may have to lock down but then there are other opportunities there to do webinars to engage with people that way from a team ethic perspective you can organize we have um, pub quizzes organised on Zoom for our team, for example, just to get everybody back together. Um, it's just spotting that opportunity and getting back in control, I guess, and just uh, worrying about the things you can affect without worrying about the things that you can't affect. Exactly right. And thinking now about the future, just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, Andrew, because I'm conscious that we are short of time. Um, 
I would like to talk about that because we are going to have to continue to adjust to the new normal, as they call it, in how we live and how we work. And with the new restrictions that came in place last week, of course, it could well be the case that we are still in this for the long haul. But over this sort of next 12 months, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve as a business at Fleet Evolution? And where do you see yourselves being indeed this time next year? Well, at the moment, we're a relatively small company. We manage about 700 vehicles, um, but we're getting real traction with the environmental side and with um, we've tried to engage employers, first of all, to greet their employees motoring, but secondly, um, trying to get them to push the climate agenda in their own organisation. And they're now getting more and more pressure from their employees. Um, I don't say this lightly, but I don't really care if people take an electric car or make that decision through us or through somebody else. We just want to get as many people out of diesels as we can into electrics. And if they make that decision, and enough people make that decision, then Fleet Evolution will succeed, regardless of who they make that through. So it's all that campaign of education, and that's been better received now than it ever has been. Over the next year, we've got plans to literally treble as a business. Um, The challenge we have, I guess, is I can see even now we have almost more work um, than we can handle comfortably. We can handle it, but it's a bit of a stretch. And it's when we make that decision to recruit additional resource to cope with the growth curve that we're on. Um, Bearing in mind we've got COVID looming kind of in the background. It's all those decisions which um, we need to take action on. And it's crucial we get them right if we're going to make significant progress over next year. But everything's in place for a lot of companies at the moment just to really ride the wave of opportunity which which could come post-COVID. Uh, And I guess it's just the companies that call it right, which will be the biggest, biggest success and hopefully will be one of them. Exactly right. There will be opportunities to come about as a result of this uh, crisis and business has to be in a place where it can really seize upon those opportunities. And we've seen some incredible innovations over the last few months, which suggest that it will be in a position to do just that. And in fact, Andrew, just given how enlightening it's been having you join us today to discuss this, I actually think it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in future and have you back on the programme with us just to see how Fleet Evolution is seizing upon those opportunities. Brilliant. I'd I'd love to do that. That'd be fantastic. It'd be fantastic for me as well, Andrew. I've certainly enjoyed having you on the programme today and I'd love to welcome you back on and hopefully there'll be some positive news to share at that point in time. Until we do speak again in future, hopefully, most importantly, do please continue to take care and stay safe with everything still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with the COVID-19 situation yet and there are plenty of ways that this pandemic could go. Thanks, Scott. I would also reiterate that message to every single one of our listeners tuning in today as well. Do please continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure to welcome Andrew Leach onto the programme today, Managing Director of Fleet Evolution in Tamworth. Next up on the programme, we'll be joined by Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. During his playing career, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Since retiring from playing, Sir Andrew spent a period of time as Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board and has become a champion for charitable concerns. 
I do hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Andrew himself. And that is coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, Mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, But then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a huge Mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I I think there is that real danger 
that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that you know you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world and uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you and you need that grounding and again that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life i think so yeah i, I mean very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know... Uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and and, and you've got (laughs) other places to be, so (laughs) we can't do that. But if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after, because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open-top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> only happened for that one night unfortunately but uh, i did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, privilege I'm sure no doubt to serve as captain and whether you like it or not you become the focal point of criticism 
uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfill that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm -hmm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually. The most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, yes. Okay, uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to 
make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was... We had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so, I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of, uh, especially school kids, who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I, mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of, Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become 
an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you do explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You'd never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. And so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018... I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers... It's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f 
for us to have that extra element of the, the Redford roof there and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just I myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Uh, wearing red. So what w- w- an extraordinary thing! Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely, you know, they, they were right behind us, and um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, because I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, Mm -hmm. potentially a a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, We need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves i can feel your enthusiasm for it as a as an essex fan i i'm still stumped as to i think i'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the oval or a team based at lords i i'll, I'll get over that but i'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it surely it's gonna be the lords one right that sh- sh- of course yeah. <laughs> um sanju it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today thank you very much cheers this has been the leaders council podcast thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.